Welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. So let's get into our conversation with Tim Maddox of Mighty Fine Signs. Uh, I first met Tim seven, eight years ago up at uh, Penland. I was helping my buddy Dean Pulver teach a uh, sculpture class, and I, I think at that point, um, Tim was beginning to experiment with hand painting signs. I think he had moved past uh, his uh, career as a, as a furniture maker and was experimenting a little bit with sculpture, but was getting into the whole idea of hand-painted signs. Oh, I, I had a chance to meet Tim not long after he moved to Asheville on a Wingate scholarship. He had just graduated from Kendall in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he was headlong into doing some, uh, some wonderful kind of graffiti-based furniture when he landed in Asheville, and I had a, a great opportunity to, to spend some time with him in a studio and saw him grow away from furniture and into um, into the signs which which you were witnessing Eric and um, so it'll be great to talk with Tim and, and see where he's going now with this with the sign painting and the evolution of that so let's get into our conversation now with Tim Maddox of Mighty Fine Signs. Here we go. What's your early experience? When did you think you made your first thing, whatever that yeah, thing was? Yeah, I think was. that's a good question. When I make my first thing, that's a good And what was jump that off. thing? Yeah, so going back as far as I can kind of remember, I've been yeah. into making stuff and drawing. I always drew as a kid. But the earliest thing I can remember that was creative and was making predates my earliest memories of really being someone who drew a lot of pictures with a pencil or pen, and that was sewing because my mom introduced me to sewing when I was, I mean, I was probably five at the oldest. Oh, and wow. You I sit started, down at a machine or? Um, I would sit at the machine with her, but oh, she set me up with just a needle and thread yeah. and scraps. And I would, what I started to do by, you know, seven or eight, I was on the machine um, and I would sew little like purse looking things, basically yeah. just little things for my mom that would have a button on them or whatever. And then around that time, probably like memories of drawing really set in like around seven or eight. And <clears throat> I drew, I was always drawing in a sketchbook. So you always had a sketchbook around? Yeah, always. Scraps of paper or mostly sketchbook? Or? Yeah, I drew fantasies like my, uh, like my fantasy tree house. Oh, cool. Oh, with, yeah. Like, yeah. You have a real history with tree houses too, <laughs> yeah, don't you? Yeah. I would build like, you know, views of all four directions of it. Or I remember drawing my, limous- my custom limousine that I was going to have that had my signature down the side and the satellite <laughs> roof great. antenna. Oh. Yep. What was your signature? What did you call yourself when you were... Oh, it was just you- my name. Was it Tim? Yeah. No, it was like, yeah, it was like Timothy Maddox. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Or Timothy R. Maddox, maybe. Timothy Automatic. It was obviously a stretch limo. <laughs> yeah, it was a huge limo. It had, <laughs> it had uh, not dualies in the back, but front to back stacked doubles in the back. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's a yeah. six wheel limo. <laughs> That's, That's great. great. Yeah. I probably imagined like putting a hot tub in the back or something. Oh, perfect. <laughs> a hot tub time machine. Yeah. Yeah. So, did you, so from, from sewing to, to drawing, did you, I mean, what was your, first, uh, your earliest uh, experience with, say, woodworking and working in, and I hate to use the word craft materials? Was it? Probably, well, probably putting together furniture from the furniture store. Oh, the pre IKEA. Pre IKEA, yeah, assembly. <clears throat> because my mom would bring it home 
and I liked to do it. Flat pack furniture kind of stuff. Flat pack furniture, yeah. And um, so assembling things got me in, I think, drew me into the mindset of fabrication, basically. Right. Working with materials. And did you you do anything like that in high school? Did you... uh, Only a little bit. Um, In high school, I was doing a lot of art, mostly outside of school. I was never a big participant in school. But my friends and I, I guess I was about 16, we started a screen printing business. A couple of my friends that were a couple years older, they were were out living on their own. Mm -hmm. And I was a junior in high school. Um, We started a screen printing operation over there and we started like a skateboarding company where we printed a lot of shirts and hats and we started printing skateboards and um, so all of our hobbies like skateboarding or making this this art through screen printing or drawing right did you act did you guys make your own skateboards we never produce our own skateboards no but during that time we did when I was still in high school we did some convention like a surf and skate company convention or something and I made a plywood sign from a graph like a hand lettered graphic that I had made kind of like graffiti-esque and cut it out with a jigsaw and like made it really pristine and nice and all the lines were really clean all taped like very laborious taping so so actually it sounds curious it sounds like the the sign stuff actually predates the furniture stuff by quite a bit it does yeah And and the sign stuff predates it because for many for a long time I made a lot of illegal signs on the cityscapes uh, it, 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 define illegal I'm just curious a little bit yeah well I've always been a lettering fanatic yeah ever since I was a kid like putting my signature on the side of the limousine as quote aka tagging tagging things we're oh yeah talk, we're talking Gra- graffiti, graffiti tagging or what? oh yeah straight up tagging yeah okay yeah it's part of graffiti <laughs> the best part um, but the, that started pretty young. Um, I was already into lettering, but I have cous- I had cu- grew up with cousins on the coasts, so cousins that were by Seattle and cousins that were in D.C. Oh. So whenever I would see them, I would really learn what was going on in the world more because you know Indiana is one of the last places to get like definitely subcultural trends. Yeah, it's like the West Virginia of the Midwest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you you know. Things only go so far by, uh, you know, string and orange juice can, I mean, especially when you're in the middle of the country. Yeah. But actually, I'm curious, but, so what's that whole history? Of, I don't know anything about graffiti, other than, obviously, you know, what I've seen in popular culture. What is that whole history of putting your name on something, tagging something? Like, what, it, made, oh, you, what made you want to put your name on stuff? Yeah, what is, what's behind that? Well, let me, back, let me back up real quick and just say that, that, well, how I found graffiti, Cousins on the Coasts. Yeah. On a trip, I discovered an older cousin's graffiti magazines, and I was sneaking uh. peeks. And when I went home, I started carrying markers around and putting my name up. But I think that putting, we don't need to get like too deep into the graffiti thing because I am not um, a graffiti theorist in that manner. But yeah. it, we, it we, is what, like putting your name on stuff yeah. is, has been shown to be like an ancient activity of humans describe your name or describe a, me- a thought or something yeah I mean, miscellaneous places sort of like yeah sort of like a, mm-hmm. a dog marking its territory in some ways or is that is that too gross a- I wouldn't really want to like relate it's all to like dogs pissing on stuff but <laughs> but yeah totally get as much piss everywhere as you can right that's the game yeah no <laughs> marker, no I mean marker in- piss <laughs> so what so what was that 
So from there, I mean, Kendall and furniture, or did you not go to Kendall to do furniture? I didn't originally go there to do furniture. So I, um, <clears throat> I had moved out of my family's home after my junior year of high school, and I moved in with these friends. Mm -hmm. And my senior year, we spent a lot of time on this business and art pursuit. So, and I, I exited high school like halfway through the senior year. I was, I was finished and we dove, we dove headstrong into work with this company, which was called Vert. And we put together a big music and alternative sports festival where we had a lot of big groups come and we had like motocross dirt jump set up and a skate park set up. So a lot of time was dedicated to putting that on. Groups like music groups? And music like groups. Turn it into a big event? Yeah, yeah. That's great. Like uh, Souls and Mischief? Yeah, wow. There. So a lot of hip hop. There was a lot of hip hop. You remember the band Thursday? Yeah, oh yeah. Like they had just like hit the scene pretty big. Like Thursday, we had Thursday there. That's, that's great. Yeah. Very cool. So it was, it was eclectic. That would have been in, I think, 2001 okay. that we did that. Anyhow, that's all to say that I didn't really, I was not focusing on school I had a lot going on that I was excited about mm -hmm. um, and weren't necessarily thinking of going to art school or I had always thought that I would go to art school I think most of my life and but when it came that time there wasn't really any like there wasn't much ushering in that direction um, I was out of the house uh, people that I was, you know, I was a really good student, but I was a pretty, very absent student. So no one yeah. was asking me really about my, my further plans. Um, but my, my parents did get on me and they're like, Hey, you, you know, really what's up? You going to college? You, you going to think college? About your future, son. Yeah. yeah. So I, <laughs> I, I really had no, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that thing. But I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And Kendall was like this last ditch thing where I hadn't committed to any of the schools I had applied to um, because college was so much not on my mind. And it got down to the last, kind of the last minute. And a friend of my dad's told him about Kendall, which was just about two hours from where I grew up, mm -hmm. two and a half hours. My dad urged me to go, to go check it out. And I got it, it was past like the application time, but they allowed a in-person application interview and I went up and they said yeah and I thought okay like this isn't taking me too far from my friends and what I'm already doing so that's how I ended up at Kendall with a intention on doing illustration and cool. now Kendall's where Kendall's in Grand Rapids Michigan mm -hmm. Kendall College of Art and Design cool so you started at Kendall and with an intention on illustration now Obviously, that got twisted around a little bit. Um, I know some of the pictures I've seen of your work at Kindle are furniture with like graffiti on it, for for lack of a better explanation. Um, how how did that all kind of develop at Kindle? Well, I continued doing the skateboarding and uh, graphic art stuff, and wasn't really into the illustration program. Everything. It just it seemed very geared towards becoming an illustrator for like American Greetings or Hallmark. Oh wow! And I think the only reason I did that was because I'd always been someone who drew, and I thought maybe I would do tattoos mm -hmm. or something, and illustration would be a good. But uh, the the cool thing about going to college with nothing to do but to 
to figure it out for that first year was I got to take class, tons of classes in everything. Right. And I really took to the 2D design class followed by the 3D design where I had an instructor named, what was his name? Brett will know his name, I bet. But he was a, a Korean furniture maker and also illustrator. And he ran the fine art woodworking program there. Wow. And okay. he was tough as shit. Like, really? So this, oh. is, this is before Brent got there. This is before Brent. I was there for two years before Brent got there. Okay. This guy was very talented and just in, incredibly focused, um, hardworking. And he expected that of like all the students. And so it just be, it became a challenge for me where I was like, there's no way to like impress the guy, yeah. you know? <laughs> so I was like, work as hard as I could to, to try to reach that bar. Um, so that threw me into the wood shop a lot and I discovered how much I liked that. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of that semester, I switched programs to the woodworking oh, and I, cool. I didn't okay. tell any of like my family or anything cause I thought they would think I was crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I'm sure your family thought you were going to a nice safe, safe profession and you had, uh, subverted the whole role and it's like. I'll, I'll get into the, I don't think the least financially viable profession forward. <laughs> I don't think they ever maker. thought I was going into a, a safe, <laughs> stable profession, really. <laughs> Hallmark, is that safe? American traditions, is that? No. <laughs> no, they knew I wouldn't end up there, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool. So that's two years in. You switch, switch gears. And, oh, so I uh, switched gears second year. I come in, and right at the beginning, before I even went to my first class, someone came up and said that, that instructor who I really liked and was the reason I switched programs had just quit. That he didn't get like the contract he wanted or something and that he wasn't gonna be in at all. So we got another <clears throat> instructor um, who was local for the year. He had a year contract mm -hmm. and he was really nice. Um, I wasn't that motivated that year in the wood shop. I spent, did a lot of stuff in other classes or outside of school and was really questioning like what the hell I had done switching to woodworking and just what the hell I was even doing in college at all. Yeah. Um, and that's when Brent came in. Um, and Brent had to come, Brent Skidmore, uh, who I share a studio with now. That guy back there? Yeah. yeah okay. He, um, he came for an interview and did a demo in the wood shop where he did the, what he calls the Mingding. Oh, that's right. Yeah, where you... Which you is a woodworking technique that you you take different tools, like say the end of a bolt, and pound little dents into a piece of wood, and then you grind it or plane the wood down till you get to the depths of the recess, and then that you've made with the indentation, and then you take a, a wet rag or towel and an iron, and you steam those parts that you've dented, and they pop back up and give a, a relief texture. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and well, he was an exciting guy, and like. I thought I was I was just interested and I felt like immediately inspired and like I was gonna be challenged so I decided to to stay on well fun a technique that you never would have expected in woodworking and all of a sudden it's introduced to you yeah That's and he's just a character fun. I mean he his exuberance you know when he when he came in there and interviewing I got excited and well, infectious yeah totally that's awesome mm -hmm. and did you think that did that change the direction you thought your work was going into that point Oh yeah, immediately I jumped, I actually jumped into furniture. Like, I think I'd made one piece of furniture the year before in two woodworking classes. I made a bunch of little bandsaw boxes that were just, um, 
They were weed holders. <laughs> yeah. They were just little, <laughs> they were functional. They were stash your, boxes. Yeah, your, your uh-huh. functional boxes. There you yeah, go. Yeah, exactly. The epitome of functional. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I think the first thing that, uh, that really attracted me to making furniture was the idea of making functional objects. I mean, well, for sure. That's why I made a lot of my initial projects. Yeah, I mean, I didn't make I mean, weed boxes, but you know, it's just there is a, there's a real interesting notion about about making something that somebody <laughs> uses as opposed to something that's hung on the wall. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, functional, um, functional. so yeah, I mean, uh, I think I probably like that about it too. I didn't think about that at the time, but looking back, hearing you guys talk about it, that's the stuff I had been making and enjoyed. You know, screen printed items or. Or yeah. whatnot. Yeah. Stuff you wear, used. stuff you're yeah. skateboarding. It wasn't wall hanging yeah. art ever. Yeah. Well, I mean, I always, you know, I guess I always felt like I wasn't good enough. I mean, I, I drew as a kid, but they, my drawings were horrid. I mean, it was nothing I'd ever put out there in public. I mean, it didn't really feel like, I felt like I had a medium until I started woodworking, building functional objects. I mean, but, uh, but that's me. Um, so, so what direction did it take when Brent started? I mean, what kind of stuff did you start making? What I started doing that weird studio furniture shit. That weird studio furniture? Yeah, I totally like drank the Kool-Aid and checked that out for so what, so three, three years. So define that weird studio furniture shit because, I mean, it's, it's a nebulous term. Well, I think that the... You need to define... Well, you guys know more about studio oh, yeah. furniture than I do. I mean, it's the stuff you charge way too much money for and people think you're crazy for making it. And or you don't charge enough money for it, really. Oh, yeah, actually, yeah, I yeah. think you, you never charge... It takes so <laughs> long to make. Uh, no, I mean... Make $4 uh, an hour doing it. I don't... You know, it's kind of... I don't know how to define that term because I remember, you know, in, in the early Furniture Society shows, I used to get in all of them and the traditionalists would always give me a ton of shit. It was like, dude, you get in all the shows with your weird shit, you know, your weird studio furniture arty shit. And, you know, the, you know, the traditional makers, we don't have a chance at any of these furniture society shows. And I was like, really? I, I'm just doing what I feel. I mean, I, I, I didn't know there was this, like, weird arty studio, studio furniture shit. I was just making the stuff I felt. So is that, I mean, once you leave the bounds of traditional furniture? Are you then making weird arty studio furniture? I don't know. That's why I ask. I mean, because I don't know what studio furniture is. So were you, were you calling your, those years of making in Kendall your studio furniture years? I haven't known if I've referred to them like that before. Because I also said that I wasn't exclusively doing studio furniture because right. I was in school, so I was cranking just, lots of yeah. sculpture. So you and, went from one piece you know, your previous semesters, and Brent comes on, and what are you, like, made eight pieces in, in a year or something? Like, you just gunned it? Um, no, we, we always, we, we tend to focus, you know, we'd have a semester, mm-hmm. and it seemed like most semesters would, would terminate in kind of focusing on one large one big project. Piece. Yeah. yeah, one big piece, and so. That's how our each one was, too. Right, yeah, yeah that's sort of defined thought. by yeah. function. Chair there was chair, casework, case right. And every once in a while we would have, a small project, like a one-week project mm-hmm. or something like that, yeah, and was it was fun. I remember one with with Brent. I had turned five, four, no, four um, pieces of cherry on the lathe that were four different sizes, okay. and I put a little. I remember putting a little bit of paint on them, like incising some lines and putting some paint on them, then oiling them, and that that was my my thing. And people were like confused as to what they were. And I said that they were like the nuclear family fist packs. You know, like a fist pack that you put in your, your hand if you're in a fight. Yeah. Oh, to make your, oh, your uh, hands harder. Yeah. 
no, you know, no. This oh. is like putting like a roll of quarters in your oh, hand or okay. something, yeah. or a socket okay. wrench. And so I did four different sizes for the family. It was a nuclear nuclear family fist pack. Uh, but everyone thought that they were butt plugs. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I mean, did you know what they were when you were making them? or did? Oh, you... yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I usually have always, like that, like had an idea and a plan in mind, and then figuring out how to how to create the object, like the visual yeah. the visual object to match with what my feelings are, what my idea is. Like you work from an idea. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting, because often I... I attach a, if it, something has to have a function, I'll just make up some bullshit after the fact. It was like, you know, so if I was turning some weird shit on the lathe and I go, oh, those are fist packs. And it was like, no, that's not the option. I was just going for some wild shapes and painted it and it looked cool. Uh -huh. <laughs> but I love that, that way of making. I talked to um, a really good friend of mine who I collaborate with some, Dustin Farnsworth. We were in school together back in the day. and At Kendall? At Kendall, yeah, we had I think two years there together, um, where we we were in the studio together from like mm -hmm. eight in the morning until midnight or two every day, and Good then talking for friends. two hours afterwards yeah. about our ideas. And but I talked to him a lot about the idea of having an idea and then building to it, mm -hmm. um, and the desire to do more, like you're saying, Eric, of kind of just like making and seeing what comes out more. Not that, that that doesn't have plenty of pitfalls because I've, you know, sometimes you get to the edge of the cliff with that idea and you go, okay, <laughs> what is it and where is it going from here? And then, then the whole idea just completely stalls out. Mm -hmm. And then you're either going to jump or you're going to well, yeah. I'm intrigued it. though by that like, <clears throat> that organic exploration of yeah. Your expression versus like yeah. defining your expression and then building to it. Yeah. More of an improvisation than a, you know, a formula. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I will say this: that that tends to happen more with small pieces. I I would be terrified to take a you know a huge chunk of wood and go. Okay, I'm just going for it because well, I mean, unfortunately, I think the finances of anything are always in the back of your head. It's like do I really want to take a $500 chunk of cherry and turn it into a piece of firewood just for the sake of exploration? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Versus a $20 piece of cherry. Exactly. <laughs> versus, right. Yeah, versus, uh, versus the, a scrap the, piece of cherry. A scrap well, piece of cherry off yeah. the big piece of cherry. Well, I just feel more freedom when there's not a, a, there's not a, a price associated yeah. with it. And some people will say, build a model. Did you build models in school? Did you guys do models or just was it based we, on sketches? We mostly, we did sketches. I want to think that I'm sure I had to have made a couple models, but it was primarily sketches. That's cool. mm -hmm. One of the things that in Haywood, we built a lot of models, mm. you know, and we would do a quarter scale model before we went on to the bigger stuff. So that's, um, what is, uh, getting naked here? Is yeah, it well, it's, uh, it's, it's hot in here. The, it's uh, so warm in here. It's so right next to the, the boiler. The furniture maker, yeah. uh, Mark Delguche, is, am I saying his name right? You know, I know who you're talking he about. He does some I, of the most I fantastic models. You would mistake the model for the actual piece of furniture. Mm -hmm. And then you look and it's like, model for a larger piece. And they look the same. They're re really fantastic. I remember seeing his model work early on. So, yeah, just curious if to if that was your, your avenue with stuff. But it's, it sounds like more of a uh, working from sketch thing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's mm -hmm. that's awesome. I think that's harder to do for me. It's you know, but uh, 
yeah, we each have our own path with that. It's, it's definitely easier figuring out things in 3D sometimes. Mm -hmm. You can sit there and rack your brain for a long yeah, time about how things around. are fitting together. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I think it's, I mean, for me, it's harder to realize things in 3D on paper. Oh, yeah, for I sure. Mean, I mean, you know, and Unless later, you're a prolific 3D artist. You know, well, I mean, I, you know, that's I, tough for I started using the computer to help me with some of that, but that yeah. just, it's well, just, it just feels artificial. It just feels like it's not a real object until I can tangibly touch it. I mean, so you're rocking and rolling, making making friends with Dustin in the studio and starting to make some, some work. And, and now it sounds like that's almost to the end of your time at Kendall. Um, yeah, let me tell you, I just remember this a story that just took yeah, place cool. and it kind of shows that whole, that sketch, that like I always go to sketch. And it's kind of ridiculous that I'm, uh, so I've always, I've always done the seamstress work and I still do that. So I was doing, a, uh, I was upholstering seat covers. I got a new van and I was trying to figure out this, like a, I was trying to come up with a specific seam overlap to make it extra strong that I hadn't done before. Mm -hmm. And I, I was kind of like just thinking about and racking my brain and then I got out a pen and paper and I was drawing the steps of folds and then I realized how much of an idiot I was because the fabric's right in front of me and I could just take, I could, you know, that's been sitting on my kitchen table and I've just been laughing at myself every day. And you're like, you could have just folded it up, used some safety pins and it's like, oh, that's yeah. that how I do it. Yeah, by well, step-by-step yeah. step folding. <laughs> <laughs> Although actually the drawing was probably pretty interesting, trying to figure out how to draw, actually folding the, the, the seam and sewing it. Yeah, I don't, yeah, it was... Uh, I don't know that if anyone came across the drawing, they would understand that that was what was happening. That's funny. Which is actually even cooler because it's you know something so functional and purposeful, yet taken out of context, it's utterly abstract. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm jumping on the sewing thing, but I think the first piece I ever saw of yours, Tim, was when I came into the studio you were showing with Brent at the time. When I was downstairs and I came in, and there was this giant kimono up on the wall of like what KFC and Wendy's bags and stuff like that. Yeah, and a bunch of fast food restaurants. Now, was that something that you did at, at Kindle, or is it something you did in, when we'll get to your move to Asheville, but um, that just blew my mind. That was the first time I, I had no idea who Tim Maddox was, and I saw that piece, and I was just knocked me on the floor. The first one of those that I did was, was for a class project at Kendall, and it was a sports jacket, like a men's, like a you know shoulder-padded type sports jacket, and then... I think it was a couple years later. This, I had a. Hmm? This was out of paper bags. You sewed, this is all. Oh uh, yeah, to go bags. Oh, to go bags. Fast so food to go bags. Oh wow, you, that you sewed and stitched. Yep. Oh, that's that's really wild. I didn't even think you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> They're but, pretty durable. <laughs> yeah, I mean you gotta be careful. You know, it's paper; it'll rip. But I mean, I wore that one, and I I ended up giving that to one of the three D design instructors to to use in the you know classes so when he would do whatever project that's, that came out of wow, right, that yeah, sounds really cool would wear it in i wonder if it's still holding on that's awesome. uh but then i had i had a show with a friend and we had this this theme show honestly it was kind of all over the place but it was very like global capitalist uh cultural us being young and trying trying to say something about stuff that we were just kind of having our minds blown apart about and um so, so what was that transition after Kendall? I mean, after you moved to Asheville right after Kendall? I did, yeah. So I got, you know, like in large part due to Brent Skidmore as a, as a professor who like really pushed me. 
and also some other really like key instructors at that school, uh, particularly Phil Renato, who was in the metalsmithing program. Um, there was a really good open door kind of policy of going up and, and bugging him about stuff, even though I was not taking his classes. I'd only taken one with him. Okay. Um, so that really got me cranking, and I, was, I got really into school. And what it ended up being was studio furniture because I wanted to learn. I really enjoyed learning all of those skills mm-hmm. that involve, like, basically, you know, for me, involved the trade, primarily tra- the trades of woodworking and metalworking. Um, and the, the furniture was just a tangible object I could wrap my mind around that required me to think things through, required me to draw. You know, it asked of me that I push myself to make something unique, but not, you know, completely off of the map um and i i just i felt really challenged by that and motivated so i worked my ass off in school and um by the by the end i i was kind of already had jumped out of school in the sense that i had gotten in some shows um, I was selling some work. That's the yoga studio upstairs. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. It's yeah. like it's pounding on my head. Yeah, it's pounding. <laughs> um, and I had some commissions. So I I was ready to just jump out of school and start working as a furniture maker. Yeah. Um, I had the great fortune and opportunity of getting a, a Wingate Fellowship when I was, right when I graduated, which gave me some funds to, to make that happen. To yeah. get going, it's what, like a what year exactly is a Wingate? That allowed you to land into a good uh, studio and have the finances to do it. I, explain it a little bit. Yeah, I've, I've never. Yeah, the the Wingate is through the given through the Center for Craft, Creativity, and Design, which is now the Center for Craft. Um, I'm not sure. It, I still call it the CCCD. I think it kind of goes under. Okay. Maybe they shortened it. I think they Center shortened for, it. They, the, they, the, they want to get rid of a C. The CFC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, they want to get rid of the the D. Um, so every year, I was the second year of it, but every year they give these sizable grants to 10 uh, graduating undergrads to pursue a project. And how it works is there are affiliate colleges and universities that nominate, I think they can each nominate two people mm-hmm. to apply. Um, and then 10 people are awarded this grant. And That's great. it was, um, yeah, it was enough money to really get me going that first year. Like, I moved to Asheville. I rented a studio space above Rob's on south, south downtown Asheville. And the reason I came down to Asheville was because Brett, who had been my professor, and at that point I was working for him doing, like, subcontract work, um, got a job down here at UNCA. University of North Carolina, Asheville. So we, <clears throat> my plan with the grant was to open a shop and it'd be like a cooperative. And Brent was gonna move into that shop with his equipment because I didn't have much for equipment at that time. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> and he got this job at UNCA and offered me that I could keep, I could set up a shop in Grand Rapids and keep his equipment mm-hmm. for at least, the, like put his equipment in there for at least a year because he was gonna be busy at his new job. And that, you know, at some point he'd be taking his machinery back. Um, Mm -hmm. Or if I was interested, I could move to Asheville and open a shop there. And I could use his equipment there. So I chose Asheville because I'd been coming down to Penland 
for a few years at that point. I'd been in and out of Asheville, and I liked it and was excited about a change. So I came down fresh out of college and opened the shop, set this shop up. And the grant gave me money to invest in metalworking equipment. Yeah, you're so, a, a proficient welder and a metal worker as well and with a lot of your work. Yeah, and that started all that started in in college, but my stepdad is a really good fabricator. Oh wow. Um, okay. So I didn't get into it when I was young, but when I was into it in college, that kind of uh, that helped my relationship with my stepdad grow closer cuz we had, you know, this thing to talk about that I was excited about that he'd been excited. He grew up in the welding shop his dad was a fabricator. His grandfather was a blacksmith. Um, so he grew up in his his grandfather's blacksmith shop. Um, but uh, so I had a lot of support around that in that Greg really wanted to like see me develop those skills and, and was supportive. So I always had someone to call yeah. if I, you know, was trying to figure <laughs> out how to do something and someone that was checking in and seeing how that was going. So I pretty much invested in the, the metalworking. Mm -hmm. And ultimately in that shop, I ended up doing, towards the end, more metalworking, subcontract work for a, a local metal worker in Asheville, who I ended up working part-time for for uh, a number of years. Yeah, because I remember when I met you in, uh, at Penland, you had, it seemed like you had a lot of, you had worked for the metal worker. Cause you, didn't you work for Brian Fireman at one point? I did, yeah, I did a lot of carving for Brian Fireman. Fireman yeah, yeah. You, it seemed like you had, you had many different experiences in sort of, I guess, figuring out how to make a living in the post-college world. Oh yeah, I, I did um, guitar repairs for a Spanish guitar company that had distribution. Oh, Alhambra. Alhambra. And Poncho. That's yeah, funny. yeah. And I'd, I'd worked in a cabinet shop on one project. Um, it's not a cabinet shop. It's uh, Union Woodworks. Yeah. Chris yeah, Spore. Yeah. Uh, they do all sorts of great work. Yeah, but I, I came in on one big kitchen project. They needed an extra. And these they were um, frame and panel, white oak, huge, awesome, nice kitchen. And all of the, all of the panels and frames needed to be hand planed. So... That was like one of the jobs I got brought in for. Wow. I, I, that must have been like a, maybe a three-month job or something. And that was cool. I'd never worked a kitchen or a cabinet job like that. But yeah. No, I remember one of my memories from you at, at Penland was uh, you did do some signs at Penland, and you didn't want to use any of the machinery. You hand-planed and hand-worked all, all of the backgrounds for your signs. Yeah, and, and uh, the sculptures. And your That's right, and your sculptures. It was like, was that a... a conscious choice at that point of your life was or is that just something you, way you'd always worked that was definitely that was no that was conscious I had not worked like that at all and that was around the, like a transitional time where I had pretty much stopped doing furniture altogether and the money that I was making was out of the metal shop and that was mostly like I said subcontract work architectural stuff and signs and I was doing part of that in my shop and part of it in another guy's shop and I had just I had felt a real pressure to sustain or grow my career as a studio furniture maker because I had found some success coming out of college with it and I felt there was expectations that that's what I was supposed to do. But I was just dragging ass through it. And I lost my motivation with that, honestly, pretty quickly. 
and I should have let go earlier than I did. But like I said, I felt obligations to numerous people to to carry that on. And so around the time I met you at Penlon is when I had decided that I was going to be leaving the shop. I was going to give up that shop and go without a shop for a while and kind of figure out what the next thing was. And so my goal, part of my goal of that class was only using equipment that I felt like I was going to have access to, like in a little basement shop. And I knew I wanted to be making stuff. And so it was a drill press and a bandsaw and hand tools. At, at some point, you make the transition completely into doing signs, right? Is that, is that soon after Penland? Is that years after Penland? Oh, uh, that was probably, it might have been a couple years after, that would have been a couple years after Penland. So, so let's jump guess. ahead to that. Um, you're, it's a journey on the out to the West Coast that, that kind of was a changer, huh? Yeah, um, the whole thing with the hand paint signs that started was around the time that I would have met you, Eric, and I was working on trying to do more hand tool stuff, I started really rec- seeing si- hand paint signs on the street, so fading signs. And when they start mm-hmm. to fade, that's when you get to see the brush strokes. Oh. You get to see the, all those, those the maker's mark. And it very much is defined. I mean, you can, you know, you can, and because it's all hand lettered, you start to spot a specific sign painter really easily if you're by you their know, brush strokes by, the, by their brush strokes by their oh, letter wow. forms oh wow oh yeah like i have i have made friends with one sign painter uh ralph frank in columbus ohio and i mean you set your brush down you pull your stroke down if you're making say a, the letter i and then you twist it and snap it into the the corner to make a sharp corner mm-hmm and sometimes you'll see a kind of sharp little kick out because someone did it quickly. Yeah. But Ralph Frank really goes for that and like pulls those points way out. He whips those points way out. I love it. Wow. So that's the signature that you can see. Can you see it like on the on the final sign really well, or is it something that's kind of like through time? It oh, reveals well, itself. that in particular you see. You see right away. Okay. The thing that's most identical about an individual sign painter's work are the letter forms. Letter forms and color, but really the letter forms. So that's what really excited you was the letter forms and seeing the, like, the maker's mark, the human side of... The, of the, the maker's mark and the human side is what really... That craftsmanship is what really mm-hmm. got me. Because um, I've always been into letter forms... Yeah. And I saw that, and I'd been doing these painted and carved signs that you saw, Eric, right. and you saw. Right? Yeah, and my shop. dad owns one. So I actually yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> just step back a little bit because, you know, I'm, I'm not entirely sure on the lingo. So is a letter form, is that a font? Or is that, or is that... Oh, yeah, we need to clarify this. Yeah, we need okay. to clarify Let's, letter yeah. form because I'm an idiot. A little, yeah. a little glossary talk here. Yeah. Well, letter form is just, as the word implies, it's the, you know, the form of the, the letter. Mm-hmm. And so... So it's the, not a font. No, the form of an R can take a lot of shapes. Now, if you form an R letter that then carries similarities into an A and a B and a C, then you have a, not a font, you have an alphabet style. Or you oh. have just a, a signature specific alphabet. A font comes once you have created a lot of set criteria. Um, you, you're controlling like all the variables. But in an alphabet... You're not, you're not typing. You're not using a letra set printed letter either, which right. is an old form of, of advertising lettering that you might use for reproduction. Um, 
So you're for, every time that you're forming a letter on the sign, you're forming that by hand. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be, it might be really similar. It might be damn near a copy of, this A might be a damn near a copy of the first one that you did, but it's not because you're, you're doing it off the cuff. You're doing it yeah, with mean, the brush or the pen. And so it's by hand. It'll never be exactly the same. But it's your... So that's not a font. That we just call it a, a letter it's style. A letter style, yeah. right? Okay. Or an alphabet. You know, if someone's done a sign with a bunch of letters on it, and you can say, like, I really like the alphabet that you use on that. Right, and you you have like multiple alphabets, right? That you feel comfortable with, or that you use as in your your lingo. Oh yeah. 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 Because but they're got, not. You've got different different styles, different alphabet sets on different signs that I've seen. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and I mean, it all comes you know, it all comes from the classic letter forms, and then building off of that. And do you do you outline them first, or do you just you do it all with the brush? It depends on the work. You know, if it's a if it's a large letter, then I'm definitely going to draw it in first, um, or generally going to draw it in first. Um, small stuff. You just you put your top and bottom lines so that you can keep your... Your, your boundaries. Yeah, you, you create your boundaries. And then you might just really quick pencil in where your words go. But then you're just building the letter form with the brush. Right. Other times it might need to be a little more controlled looking, a little, you know, and then you'll sketch in a little bit more of the full letter form. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like a bit of planning goes into each one. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like... Some you know, more than others. What you've been doing in the past, you know, it's really... But it really, also can be really quick. Yeah. You know, the planning can be pretty minimal. Right. I yeah. mean, yeah. I or mean, it can be, uh, you know, a lot... It can take a lot more time than paying the sign also. Yeah. Or right. It can, or it can be spontaneous and, you know... Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I do like the, the notion, I, I mean, I'm, I think this is a topic um, Rob and I get into a lot with the furniture stuff, and my escape into sculpture has a lot been a lot about trying to escape that that perfection that just pervades the furniture world. It's oh, my like, God. I, it just drives me crazy. Cause Tell I, me about it. Because up, up and down a wall again. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, we're just imperfect beings, so why should we try and create something perfect? It drove me crazy. It dri- it, yeah, I was like, no, I, I, you know, I don't want to build perfect objects anymore. I think anymore. Rob must thrive on it, though. Because he's, he's the only one yeah. of us that stayed in furniture. Well, it's yeah, fun. and you, like, you always seem happy in the, your shop, yeah, it, and your, your quality... Has, pro- has only gotten better, yeah, I'm sure, it, and your ability to do it well, more quickly has yeah, gotten better. I mean, we were talking about repeatable pieces. It, um, I've just made the 13th and 14th of this jewelry armoire that I do. The and classic. Each one, the classic piece. they're better. I mean, I've been yeah. making them since like 2008. That's and, awesome. And they're great pieces. And sometimes I take it for granted. Sometimes I'm like, I'm sick of this piece. But then at the same time, it's like, I'm really damn good at making that piece. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a balance. It really is a balance. It's, you know, it's a hard one to get into and really embrace. But at the same time, yeah, we're good at it. You're good at what you do. You're good at what you do. I I think I've learned over time just how to say, you know, fuck it. I mean, it's just like, uh, you know, so it's not perfect. It's okay. I mean, I think I I get that. I I have not. I went into sign painting to change my mindset so that I could say fuck it every day and not try to have everything refined. And what six, and it didn't six work? or seven years later, I'm still that. Oh, it's, it's I think it's an eternal battle for me. Yeah, yeah. I'll 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 die. Well, yeah. I, I think I've come Which to I'll it. I'll die <laughs> touching up. <laughs> I mean, I think I've come to it through age. I think you know, you just get old enough, and you just say. 
fuck it, you know, life's too short. I don't need to, I'm not cutting this thing a second time. I'm not going to make it perfect. It is what it is. And it is that being, that, <laughs> that being a perfect reflection of who I was in that moment. I just didn't, you know. No, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what drew me to sign painting, yeah. saying that. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, so, um, so from that trip out west, what? So you, you apprenticed in a shop or you? Um, no, so I started photographing old signs. Um, oh, wow. And out, I, when you were out west? No, when I, around the time that I met you, probably. Right. I was, I was traveling quite a bit around the country and um, taking as many pictures as I could of uh, representations of the, those brush strokes. Right. And didn't even really think that it was a possibility that I could, that I would be able to learn it. Like it seemed, it seemed like a bygone art form that I wouldn't be able to learn from anybody. I really didn't think, I thought, I really didn't think that anyone still did it. Um, and a girlfriend at the time encouraged me and got me Ralph Gregory's book, Sign Painting Techniques, which is, a, a great uh, kind of now like classic text on how to become a sign painter uh, from, I think, I don't know what the first edition is, but I think was it's... Was that the one that was sitting here on the table? Or is that a different No, one? that's a okay. much, that's an older one. That one's from like the 20s. This oh, cool. Ralph Gregory sign painting techniques, I, either from the late 60s, I think it's from the late 60s or around 1970, maybe early 70s. Okay. I don't remember. But uh, I was like, oh, this is really neat. And I held that for a while and would look at it a lot and was reading it, but still didn't have the proper brushes to to really try to accomplish anything. And then I went out, when I was out west one time, I was in Oakland with a friend. We were driving down San Pablo, and all of a sudden I saw this shop that said hand-painted signs, really big on it. And the whole shop front was hand-painted and, and gorgeous. And we turned around, and it turned out to be Golden West Sign Arts um, with Derek and Tina, uh, working there, and they were closed that day, but saw us peeking in the windows and, and let us in. And oh wow! And I just you know I peeked around for five minutes, talked to them, and Derek was incredibly kind and said if I was ever in the area, I was welcome to come by and hang out. Um, and I flew back to Asheville with a real excitement and thinking that there was an opportunity to actually be a sign painter. I'd just seen a real live sign painter, and I'd never yeah. seen that before. And he was only he's like my age. Yeah. Or something. So, oh, wow. um, and he'd been doing it a long time. He's really good. So yeah, I, I started practicing every day, especially after, like after the metal work and I would stay up till two or three at night. I had a butcher roll. I had a drafting table with a butcher, a, a roll of butcher paper mounted underneath it. And then I had a piece of wood clamped to the, the first edge of it. And then a, I lived in this like studio place that had really high ceilings. I put a pulley up on the ceiling and I just started going line by line. Like every night, listening like through the alphabet, or yeah, just doing different alphabet styles, yeah. trying to figure out how to use that damn brush, and uh, yeah, I was doing one inch to to two inch, sometimes three inch tall lettering, and I think I mean I did a lot, a lot of feet, a lot of linear feet of lines, um, probably thirty linear feet wow. or something of lines. Do you have that butcher that, paper anymore? Or parts I do. Of it? Yeah, <laughs> I have it. I have it in storage somewhere. Cool. Oh wow. Yeah. So then, then after that, I, you, I decided... Then you went back out west and you... Yeah, I, I, I started doing the internet research and realized that there were sign painters out there and I emailed every single one I could find trying to get a job or an apprenticeship or just anything. And everyone was really friendly. Uh, no one had an opportunity available like that, which 
I understand now being in business for myself and doing it, you know, like <laughs> yeah, the idea of having someone regularly committed to it seems like a challenge. Yeah. But Derek always, you know, his reply was always like, yeah, if you're in the area, stop by. And I was trying to nail him down and kind of like, can I be there for a week? Can I be there for two weeks? You know, and he was just like, just stop, you know, stop by. So I went out there and uh, I was staying, with, I stayed with some friends in San Francisco for a couple of days. And right when I, right when I got off the plane, I had this like big backpack and I was trying to figure out how to get to my friend's place in the outer sunset district. And I was, I was thinking like, oh, I really need a bicycle. And all of a sudden this dude cruised up on a bike and he was like, bike for sale. <laughs> and he had this Schwinn that was a little too small for him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Oh, one of those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and a uh, bike lock. And I ended up getting this bike lock and this Schwinn off of him for 50 bucks. And I also had wheels while I was there. So I started riding to the train and then riding up through, um, through Oakland and to get to this shop. And I did that for about a week. And then uh, Derek let me crash in a back room of the, the shop because I was just trying to be there all the time. I was, th- I was there for about two weeks, um, not consistently that whole two weeks. And it was awesome. I got, I got to see how someone really runs a hand-painted sign shop. I mean, he, he still doesn't use computers. Everything is hand-drawn, sketched. And he had a pretty busy shop there. Um, actually, that shop was in Berkeley, I believe. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, he – so I learned all these old – he did everything – he does everything the, the old school way, and I got to watch that. He would show me, get me set up with paper, um, and I came back incredibly excited about that. What year was that? I think that was probably 2012. Okay. Yeah. I came back and went back to the metal working and uh, doing a lot of practice. At that point, I got off the paper and started making little – signs on on wood substrates and whatnot and then one day I was on site installing one of these metal signs and I was pretty tired of the work I was up on like I think I was up on like two bucks of scaffolding hammer drilling into the to the wall to put these these metal signs in and it was hot I think it was in June and I I came down off the scaffolding and went into the business and told them I was a sign painter and asked if they needed any hand-painted signs and I took my first order for wow. hand-painted signs for that and I I told the the metalworking guy that I wasn't available anymore and I made t-shirts and business cards and told people I was a sign painter <laughs> and that's what I've done since then so it was a, right it was stalling that sign was the transition point it was like I'm done <clears throat> yeah and I think I'm I did here. do a couple metal things after that like I didn't just totally yeah. ditch on them at that time but i i told him that i was i was working away and yeah that's what i've done now that i've done that since primarily wow so six or seven years now on yeah it was june 2013 that okay. i told people i was a sign painter that's awesome tim i declared myself a professional i was not probably so you kind of <laughs> you, you kind of got into you know kind of your inspiration as far as like the, the the craft of sign painting, is there anything else that that motivates you to do it? Like, I don't know, the state of the world, stuff that you see, stuff that you take in every day. I mean, are, are there, you know, what 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 motivates you to do that? I mean, I've seen you do stuff that ranges from signs for businesses and boutiques to protest signs, and you know, I think I've caught some Instagram stuff like for the Women's March and things like that. Like, 
seems like you're doing signage in all sorts of different places. Like right. what motivates you and what do you, what do you, what do you chase now with your signage? Well, the lettering is just kind of like any other type of drawing in that I have to do it as therapy. Yeah. You know, like I'm, yeah. I'm someone that I, I have to sit down and move my hands and like draw something, create something. And it just, that's turned into mostly lettering, mm -hmm. which I want to, I don't want to get away from lettering, but I want to get back more into, to drawing other objects too. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always, I mean, you can ask all of my roommates, their mail always ends up with lettering covering it front and back. <laughs> you know, like all, like I, I sit down For with sure. whatever mail comes in the mail and any blank spot on that package. Yeah. I'll draw on. And so that's one motivation is just that there's some yeah. therapeutic need I have for that yeah. in general. Yeah, and then I've, in <laughs> I've always thought of craft making as a disease. I mean, it's, a, I mean, we can't stop. I mean, it's, it's an, an uncontrollable, uncurable disease. Yeah. I think of it as an ease because it eases my dis-ease. Yeah, it's like my psychoanalyst is named Cherry and Walnut. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's helpful. So yeah, it, it calms you. It makes you happy to do that. Um, yeah, it does. Yeah. That's cool. That can't be the only reason why. Well, that's what keeps me just like doing stuff that keeps like you that. Sane. But as far as the breadth of work that I do, cause yeah. I do, I do paid for higher work. I do, mm -hmm. um, I do a lot. A lot of that is design work, which is fun. Cause I get to exercise kind of like the full creativity there. And yeah. some of it's, more just you know painting someone's logo or something mm -hmm. um but even the stuff that i'm designing and i'm excited about it's advertising it's all advertising art and i like the look of advertising art i like the history of advertising art i'm not someone who um my first joy in life is not promoting the like anything to do with money mm -hmm. you know and so <clears throat> without like getting too into the specifics of that in some ways, my the trade that I'm in is contrary to my beliefs yeah, it's a, and it's my a, lifestyle, <laughs> my personal lifestyle. Yeah. Um, so, but it also creates it's a it creates an opportunity for me to make things I enjoy making and to make a living. But to balance that out, I knew from the start that I wanted to do like nonprofit work mm -hmm. or work that like I wanted to be able to translate that medium and that trade into something that felt that was being of service. Right. So that's where a lot of the, a lot of other work comes into play. Right, because obviously, just looking around the signs of your shop, like I can see there's a, there's there's a political element to some of it, and just a humorous element. Obviously, no one for sheriff. I mean, that's that, that's a pretty obvious one. But uh, that was a pretty fun campaign. There was a sheriff uh, primary happening here, and um, <clears throat> I'm for I'm for police. I'm I'm a police abolitionist. I'll just say I can I'll say that live on your podcast. Um, but in particular, there was this there was this one guy running for sheriff, and he put so many cor coroplast is like the plastic cardboard. You know what I'm talking about? The signs that you see all the right, election yeah, the signs. Usually, your last standard year. yard sign. Last your standard forever, yard ever, sign. Ever. Yeah, yeah. And all over the damn county, he had so many signs going up. It was obscene. It was just, it was. I mean, it was ten times more than the next most prolific sign installer for the the sheriff thing. And I heard, and this is still just a rumor to me, that he bought a four by eight flatbed printer and was printing these all himself. So he was buying the Coroplast wholesale and he was able to print and you know you can get those machines on lease and stuff. So 
that was part of his campaign investment, which was pretty damn smart. But the design was terrible. It featured, you know, predominantly a large yellow arrow pointing to nothing. And then his text wasn't that visible from far away. And I just was getting so mad looking at all these ugly signs. And also, I didn't want him to be sheriff. I didn't want anyone to be sheriff. But, but your I main opposition to him being sheriff was his poor sense of graphic design. And yeah, and his obscene <laughs> behavior with buying a printer and blasting all of us with these. So I started painting the no one for sheriff ones. And I kind of focused on having a layout such that no one was... Part of sign design is you gotta you have to feature your copy in a way that it reads the best. Yeah. So is sheriff the most important or is the person's name most important? In that case, you want people to remember the name, so the name is most important. Is the arrow important? The arrow is absolutely, it shouldn't even been on there. It's not pointing to anything. Right. Uh, so I made the sign so that I could place it next to his signs and it would just, his sign would just then be an advertisement for so mine. So the arrow and his sign was pointing towards your sign. And when you put my legible <laughs> sign next to it, you couldn't even, you know, his his lettering became no one, you know, people didn't notice it. It was just a yellow arrow pointing to mine. To your yeah. sign. <laughs> yeah. That's very and, funny. The thing that's about that project is back in the day, if you were a sign painter, you would get a lot of jobs where you were just lettering all day long and you'd get really proficient with a brush. Um, my work is not so much like that. Everything it's more one off. You know, if people are getting fifty yards yard signs, they're not getting a hand a sign painter right. to do it. But I've always approached sign painting from these old textbooks, and I've tried to approach it in a way that I'm like trying to accomplish the, the ranks of a journeyman sign painter. So the, the historical progression of, of your career in a trade, in this specific trade. And so doing projects like that gives me the opportunity to paint 50 sides of a yard sale sign, and I, have, and I get faster and I get better with the brush. So right. I get the therapy of, of the lettering, I get the career building of becoming a more proficient and better sign painter, and I get to be, I, I mean, it's questionable, I think people would question whether or not this was like of service to the community, but I certainly got to exercise like some of my demons. Right, and it was a, it was a service to your own needs. And maybe a service to society, who knows, but I mean... Police, yeah, I mean, abolishing police would be a service to the world, but... Right. Also, I think that people cracked up, you know, like, people, we all need, especially in that realm, I mean, shit is tense, you know, in the the political realm, and humanity is, you know, we're suffering, and so being able to, a lot of that work that I do is not, that I do for other people is not humorous. I mean, I've had to do some. Although there's something humorous about his sign pointing to your sign. No, so that's that, why doing that, that's very funny. Is, is good. I mean, I, I mean, we I need, like, we need that. Not only did you, you did do a service to society because you pointed out bad graphic design because his sign. <laughs> right. Yes, his, that might have been the yes, best. Yes, your your yeah. service to society, and and you know, I'm looking at this other sign in your shop. It says, "Absolutely membranes in the soup." I mean, obviously that's pure humor, unless. Of I don't imagine anybody <laughs> commissioned you to do that, unless no. somebody wanted to advertise the fact that they have. Membranes in their soup, right? <laughs> but uh, people like membranes. Well, soup. I like tendons in my soup. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're really working from the heart, Tim. And I mean that—that's what I pick up from a lot of it, and you know, from talking with you today. But we're going to go ahead and wrap up here, and um, thank you very much for uh, for talking with us today. Thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, you we, me on. you know, uh, we were thrilled to have you as the the first guinea pig on. Uh, <laughs> 
the Why Make podcast. Uh, do you have any questions for us on the way out, or are you just curious about? I mean, I have questions for both of you because yeah. well, let's, I we'll, haven't talked to you in a long time, we'll and Rob yeah, is a good well. friend of mine. Yeah, uh, so I mean, just you know, so informally, I guess I'm kind of wrapping that up at an hour, but I guess I should have added this too, like. You know, we're seeing stuff here. What, what what are your plans? Where are you going from here? Having settled into this shop, and uh, you know, having in June you'll be doing this for six years. And uh, what, where do you see yourself going from here? Like, what are your what are your intentions? What kind of signs are you really really enjoying painting? And well, I just finished up these big signs that are um, they're kind of old school neon signs Mm -hmm. so it's metal fabrication and then neon bending and electrical wiring and then and everything all the graphics behind the neon are hand painted and that was a really fun project i designed it and i worked with a neon bender i worked with a company in concord north carolina called right light signs Mm -hmm. excuse me and a really great neon bender there named bid and they did all the fabrication of the cans so these signs are seven feet tall and 11 and a half feet wide and about and 30 inches deep so they're they're big old signs that go up on posts and i got to do a lot of big fun letter painting on that um the big stuff is fun like Mm -hmm. you can i feel i can be a looser with the big stuff yeah i can let looser things go and so i got to paint some pretty big letters on that and it was fun to get back in that mode that kind of reminded me of a furniture of like really designing a project through. And I do that anyways, cause I do three dimensional signs and, mm-hmm. and everything, but this one really had a lot wrapped up into it. And I love neon. So I want to do more neon sign design and I'm interested in learning to bend neon, which I did a little bit of f- uh, flame working glass bending when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. I started working at this little glass shop that made, smoking paraphernalia and uh sex toys mm-hmm. and so i learned to make like pipes or whatever when i was 17 and then i never <laughs> went back to it i never was like yeah. not got really good at it but i could no. I made some that i could sell or whatever so i want to learn neon bending and then kind of try to wrap all the the skills up into the trade because the trade of sign making um for me really is good it's a good way to stay self-employed to keep projects diverse, and to be able to use a wide skill set. So let's wrap it up. I really want to thank the Tim Maddox for joining us on the, f- the first real edition of Why Make. So why make? Yeah. Why make? Why Bye. make. Thanks, guys. Yeah.